Hello and welcome. We're Safe Sport International, a global charity dedicated to empowering children and adults to experience sport in an inclusive and safe environment. We are passionate and experienced global safeguarding leaders with a vision to end all forms of non-accidental violence, abuse and exploitation in sport. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to Developing Safeguarding Advocacy in Sport. My name is Jo Norman. In this podcast, we discuss topics that some listeners may find distressing, so please do listen with caution. Today, I'm speaking with a very experienced person in international sport, and I'll let him introduce himself. Over to you, Mark. Uh, thanks, Joe, and hello, everybody. Um, first of all, thanks, thanks for inviting me to be a part of this, I think, uh, really important conversation that we're having around safe sport. Um, uh, I'm, as you know, based in Trinidad and have been working as part of the Caribbean Sport and Development Agency, a nonprofit that we started about two decades ago. And as part of that work using sport as a tool for development, we, we, we recognize the need for us to be doing safeguarding. Um, and that was like literally t- uh, uh, 10 years ago that we initiated our, our journey around making sports safer for children in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I'm, I'm serving now on the Safe Sport International Advisory, and I'm, I'm lucky to have the opportunity to work alongside a lot of persons who are really experienced in the sector and who have uh, expertise. For me, I, I like to declare that um, I'm less of an expert and more of a practitioner, um, but a pr- practitioner with a lot of support from a lot of amazing people, that, and that would have helped to to, I suppose, uh, reinforce and um, and to strengthen the, the my own journey and the work that we've been doing here in the Caribbean. So yeah, that's me, Joe. And um, again, thanks for having me to be part of this conversation. And again, Mark, it's great to have you here and to, to be sharing your experiences because it's so important that we're anybody using, uh, engaging in sports, using the services and so on, have that confidence that there are people who are looking out for them, ensuring that there isn't um, any abuse or exploitation going on and that this work is so important. So, Mark, tell me about your experience of working with athletes and coaches over the years. Well, and and specific to the safeguarding, I think... um... The work that we would have been doing, this would have been work out of the Caribbean Sport and Development Agency for the large, um, for the most part. And um, that work focused a lot on in the education and, and building capacity. So very early on, focusing on uh, providing opportunities for coaches and, and, and athletes and volunteers and persons who work with uh, persons who work with kids with disabilities, uh, those target populations that we work with in children in schools and communities, providing them with opportunities to increase their capacity. So to know more about what safeguarding is and what we can do to make sports safer for children and, and, and young people and kids with disabilities. So a lot of focus back in the early days around education and awareness. Um, and that that kind of morphed into small workshops and um, and then and then more organized and institutionalized workshops through collaborations with other partners. So that was a, a lot a lot of our initial effort. Um, and as we moved along, we recognized, well, we, we're providing education, but we're not strengthening the organizations themselves. 
Um, and so we started to do some work with organizations as well, um, strengthening their institutional capacity, as it were. And that's where we started to introduce things like policies and guidelines. And again, all supported by our global colleagues, um, helping them to helping our, our local partners here in the Caribbean to be better at, uh, as organizations, be stronger institutionally to be able to facilitate safeguarding. So that's, that's been where the effort has been, a lot of focus on education and awareness, and we still do a lot of that. And, and a lot of it is done in collaboration with other partners across the region, and then strengthening of policy and guidelines. And, and, and as part of that, you as you may be aware, we, we uh, advance the uh, international safeguards for children in sport. And so we had been a part of that journey from the very from the very beginning until its launch in 2014. And we still continue to serve um, in, in some capacity um, to continue to serve that organization that the that manages the international safeguards for, for children in sport. So that that's kind of a nutshell of what we focused on, a bit of education, capacity building for individuals, and then some strengthening of capacity of organizations who support youth and sport programs in, in the region. Thank you. Uh, really clear. And it's been obvious it's something that has um, got a history to it. So I, I guess the next natural question would be, why is there a drive for this service? I can hear what you've talked about of ensuring that um, children and people using the services uh, in sport are aware um, of the risks uh, related to being uh, to abuse and exploitation. But why a drive for an advocacy service? Well, Joe, as we've had you know off line conversations, when we talk about advocacy and advocacy services, that has different meanings and different understandings for people all over the world. And um, and because this is, of course, SSI, Safe Sport International, we're a global organization. And so um, for clarity, when we talk about advocacy on this side of the pond and particularly in the Caribbean, within the context of the work that we've been doing, whenever we talk about advocacy, we're really talking about those very specific actions. I like to use that with actions, not just activity, but really deliberate actions, things that we do, the things that we very deliberately do to try to influence change, to try to influence change in policy and in, in systems and in practice, et cetera. So, um, and separate and apart from when, when we talk about advocacy services in some parts of the world, it's, it's very specific to that kind of legal advocate, that person who speaks on behalf of um, victims and, and survivors. So for so for, what, for for the intents and purposes of this conversation, I'm referring to when I talk about advocacy here, I'm talking specifically about um, those very deliberate actions, the things that we do to try to influence change, to try to influence change, as I said, in, in policy in, in, and in practice in particular. And I guess the, the question is who's responsible for that and who provides that service? So for us, we've, we've kind of tried to embed advocacy across all of the work that we do so that if we're working with youth, uh, with young people who are maybe volunteers or youth sport leaders, and we are introducing them to a basic education around safeguarding, part of that conversation, part of that workshop will include their role, their responsibility as young people, how can they put, um, take on that role as advocates for change in their clubs, in their communities, in their schools? How can they use their voices? How can they use their own uh, expertise as, and, and, and experiences? And usually it's through technology and social media, but um, and, and they would come up with other creative ways that they can take action to try to influence change. Again, again, change specifically for better practice and for improved practice for policies, for strengthening guidelines, all of those types of things around safeguarding. 
So, and similarly, if we're working with um, teachers and, and coaches who are delivering programs for children and young people in schools and communities, we also include that um, that element of advocacy. What can you do uh, as, a, as an advocate to help improve and, and help to influence change within the context of where you work in the sport ecosystem? Um, and and similarly too with um, with I guess what a, a good um, target for us has been over the years champions. So you know we look for those voices that have influence, um, high profile athletes, um, or sometimes politicians. Not not my favorite go to, but sometimes sometimes that's where we have to go. But looking really strategically for individuals who are already in places of influence. You know how you know in this whole social media thing now, and I'm seriously not a, an active part of that social media thing, but they're actually people whose job titles are influencers, and that's all they do. Well, well, in the old school way of thinking, you know, we are also try to identify those individuals who can be champions. Um, and they're usually standout athletes who are already committed to doing, you know, that kind of um, um corporate social responsibility type of work. Um, so I'd say, so in a nutshell, uh, when we think about advocacy, it's not left up to any particular individual. So it could be um, the children and the grassroots people on the ground, what they can do to use their voices and their spaces to help facilitate change around improving safeguarding practice and policy in this, in their context. It can be the organizations, um, the uh, administrators and the coaches who are actively involved in their clubs. It could be the politicians as well, um, and those persons who we can identify as champions who can help lead that change. I, I was just thinking when, when uh, in one of the other conversations that we were having, Joe, that ideally, and a nice, a really ideal situation is if all of these stakeholders could actually be collaborating. So it's not just the young people in the schools or just the coaches and administrators or just the champions, but they're all working kind of collaboratively, you know, one voice in unison, everybody paddling in the same direction, you know, and, and that, of course, should potentially add more um, value to, and, and to, to the effort, you know, and potentially strengthen that um, that action for influencing change because that's that's critical right now uh, we need more of those voices not just here in the caribbean but globally we need people who can take on that role and that responsibility to influence change to really um, accept that responsibility and and to work both as an individual but also collaboratively with other voices to support and influence change in our safeguarding sector so that suggests sort of levels of advocacy. So in, in my uh, thinking, there's the advocate for the person who has been harmed, abused or exploited in some way so that they have a voice in, uh, as you say, uh, not just within a legal arena, but also within a, um, a, the, the social arena. They have their person who will speak up for them. Uh, in a very daunting world, really, to when you disclose abuse or you experience abuse, to actually speak out about it uh, is very difficult. So on that one-to-one level, the advocate who is going to be identified by, usually by the person who has been um, harmed, yeah. Yeah. to speak for them yes. in, in a scary place. But there's also all the advocates at different levels, the people who are going to develop the safe culture of the organization, who's going to champion 
the rights of the individual, the person who's been abused or harmed. And then, yeah. of course, there is at that political level, however much we don't <laughs> um, always uh, want to depend on that, it's just recognising that there are aspects of uh, legal ad- advocacy that we need to yeah. engage in in order to change laws and uh, yeah. ensure that human rights are prioritised. So that's yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that one of the challenges with, with advoc- advocates in that context as those who speak out on behalf of the voiceless, if you wish, and particularly persons who have already been traumatized and who need that type of support service, um, the, the reality is that uh, that that service is provided in, in countries that uh, are already well-developed and already have uh, safeguarding systems and structures in place. Um, and so a significant part of the world, their communities and and uh, that cannot access or do not have access to quality services like that. Um, and that's part of the reality, particularly within the sports setting. So within the sports setting, it's not something across many of the lesser developed or developing nations. It's not a service that's easily provided, even in the uh, in the in the general space, much less for the sports uh, sector. Um, and so that's part of one of the realities that we have to deal with as well. So how do we how do we address that gap within um, the sports sector? that gap that uh, provides those types of services for persons who are, who have been traumatized by some forms of harm or abuse and so that that's a that's a reality of limitations of resources obviously and um, and when you have if you talk to some nations right now about and we've been having conversations recently about uh, about safeguarding and for them it's not a priority because their resources they they have to decide where they use their resources and if in the context of their their and this is not something that i support but in the context of their reality safeguarding is way down on the bottom of of their priority list and so if they have resources the resources are used for usually in the first instance their high performance teams and and um, and then potentially their outreach programs and development but the right at the bottom of the table then safeguarding comes up and and so these the, the challenge is how do we address this as a glo- at a global level when we have those limitations how do we again and so this is like the two advocacy things coming together now how do we advocate for these types of services, regardless of your reality, um, economically and otherwise, because we recognize that this is important, that we can't have a high performance program that's that's getting 90% of your, your overall sport budget, and there's nothing left for uh, matters like addressing abuse in, in sport. And so those are the things that we need to change as well from, uh, you know, the big picture changes that we need to make. So And so we need advocacy for that. So it's like this is the advocacy, advocacy conundrum that we enjoy that we need to advocate for advocacy services. So. Very, very challenging. But also picking up is that need for an equality in the provision, as you say, uh, there yeah. may be assumptions around how it's managed Yes. Um, within different parts of the world in an effective way. And yeah, there's areas sure. where it is probably felt to be less of a priority. Um, and yeah. therefore, abuse is much more likely to happen because it will be easier to abuse children and young people and vulnerable. Well, I don't know if that's, that's a true statement because, in fact, we found that in some other work that we've done, this is through Safe Sport International, some other work that we've done, and doing some uh, focus groups across 
organizations that would be considered to be, let's say, low level in terms of readiness and uh, for safeguarding as compared to those in highly developed nations with, with all of the systems and structures in place. And one of the things that we've actually observed is that even though there may be countries who do not have um, the systems and the structures in place, sometimes they have good practice in place and establish cultures that are cultures that are caring and that seek the interests of children. And um, and so I guess that that's another uh, dilemma that we have. We have some countries where they have everything in place legally and otherwise, all of these systems and structures and personnel in place, but we still have a high incidence of abuse. And then there are other countries where we may not have all of those things in place, and um, but because of embedded good practice and cultures of communities, their their general nature is to look after their children and and young people and vulnerable persons. Of course, we don't have um, we don't have the empirical data to compare all of these things, but I think the conversation is that we need to be a, a little cautious about um, making statements that suggest that because we don't have all of those systems and structures in place that we're more uh, that there's more abuse happening there because we do know that in some developing countries that the focus has shifted so much to making sure that the structures are in place that there's a gap between that structure and the actual practice and so how do we move away from people just having have the policy in place we have the guidelines in place we have this in place but it's almost like if it's a tick box activity now and they spend all of their time and their resources completing these tasks that are paper pencil tasks versus the application of those in in, in real settings. so I think we a bit of, we are a bit at um, some a crossroads as 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 it were in in, in at a global level and um, and I think we can learn from both sides of of um, of development in that sense from good practice and embedded cultures of good practice as well as uh, good strong um, policies and systems and so on and so when they can come if we could get those coming together um, that that will I think will 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 help both or it will help everybody and help improve our, our collective journey as it were around safeguarding. So absolutely. And from what you're saying, different communities can learn from each other. Yeah. Um, huge amounts from each other. Absolutely. Um, and absolutely. not to make assumptions that uh, yeah. there are some communities yeah. who have it right. Um, yes, and- exactly. So so there's right and there's wrong and there's different, but we also do know, and this is one of the, again, the, the, to be cautious here too, that we don't um, we don't adopt a position that um, that it's okay to not have structures, uh, or that it's okay to not have um, to not have good culture. You know, so I think it, we need everything, and then and this is where organizations like SSI come in. That we also have globally accepted principles, some globally accepted. Well, I, I know I'll use the word standards, for, but just just for for clarity, and I think so. Regardless of your state of development and 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 resourcing and all of that, there are things that are acceptable and there are things that are not. And so, part of our responsibility as advocates, as well, part of our responsibility is to advocate for um, adherence to compliance to global standards, regardless of where in the world you are, regardless of your culture, regardless of your economic situation. That there are some things that are globally accepted as 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 the standard for and and the things that are not acceptable and we must we must not use the excuses of culture or economics realities or anything else to to give in to poor practice that leads to or potentially would lead to causing harm uh, to children and young people and vulnerable populations 
And I guess our main standard is the United Nations Convention and ensuring that as we all have a responsibility to um, implement that within our all our nations and communities, that uh, that's our go-to place, really, for ensuring yeah. that we maintain the rights of every individual. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and of course, we, we, we built on that. And so the, the International Safeguards for Children in Sport and the Safe Sport International Principles. And then we have other organizations who are also providing guidelines for us at a global level, like the Center for Sport and Human Rights, providing guidelines for us at a global level in terms of practice, whether it's at a community-based level, grassroots sports, or whether it's the hosting of mega sport events. And those are things that I think um, are are add significant value and guidance for us, regardless of what part of the world that you're in. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Can I just ask you one more thing? Because all these situations um, come alive, if you like, when we uh, have any examples of when um, using advocacy has been effective, and maybe even if it, when it hasn't been effective and what's caused those problems. So I wonder if you have anything. Some, some things are challenging to measure, but, you know, we feel... We feel that you know that you can just you can at least judge some things based on um, general indicators, if you wish. Okay, so I I think one of the wonderful experiences that I would have had would have been working with uh, the Commonwealth Games at, at Glasgow in 2014, um, and that was a real collaborative effort with UNICEF um, and with the I think it was a a young a young a young sport council or something. I can't remember the exact name of it coming out of Scotland. So these were young people. And so what we did was that we workshopped with these young people to give them some basic um, guidelines for taking on the responsibility as lead advocates, if you wish, uh, during the games. Um, and we set up in the games village um, some some banners and these young people had these electronic um, tablets in hand. And as people passed through the games village and there would have been coaches, athletes, administrators, including the uh, the head of Commonwealth Games, everybody who was passing in and out of that village all the time and interacting with these young people. And, and the interaction was really just to create uh, awareness about uh, safeguarding. Um, it was a simple quiz that uh, that participants were completing on, on, the, on the little tablet. But at the end of it, it led to, there was, there was a, a commitment. So uh, all of the persons who passed through and engaged with them would complete a little, a simple, they would take a marker, felt marker and write on a little card their commitment to, or something that they can do to make sports safer. And so we filled up a, a billboard, a couple of billboards actually with, with these cards, with uh, statements, commitment statements. And, and then they would take pictures and it would go on, on um, they'd post it on social media. And when athletes did that from all of the different countries, their followers would have then interacted with it. So I'd say that a simple little, a simple, really low cost activity of we had about ten volunteers, young, uh, young advocates, uh, young people from from uh, Scotland where the games were hosted, are uh, using their uh, voices and their um, their own activity, their own action to try to influence change by engaging with athletes and coaches and, and volunteers and administrators in sport, and that reached. Uh, I, I I don't I can't say millions of people because I can't I don't have the data, but let, certainly it would have reached a lot of people based on the connections with all of the athletes and so on. One of the young 
outstanding uh, boxers, female boxers from London. To, I can't remember from England. I can't remember her name, but um, just just that one athlete because of her popularity that just as they say went viral. I don't know if that's the correct term to use. So that's there are simple things that we can do, um, but then there are also really challenging things. And I've in the in the Caribbean in particular I felt like sometimes you bounce your head against a wall always trying to in, get into these spaces to create changes and having conversations, particularly with politicians across the region. And you think, oh, we have this, this is a real high profile person. Let's get in there. Let's make the effort to have the conversation. And then we feel like nothing comes out of it. But, but a colleague of mine tells me that sometimes things happen in their own time and space. And even though you may not see the, the response immediately, some, sometimes you leave a little small bit of influence and that person eventually gets to somewhere and the change happens. So I, I don't think, you know, that you, we should be we've overly, I think we should be, but, you know, not to be overly concerned about things that uh, efforts that you feel are not impactful that you'd like them to be. Don't let that deter you. I think this, the, those efforts still um, are still required. And so sometimes you have some things to celebrate about immediately, like like the effort in Glasgow. And sometimes it will take time. But um, as as individuals, whether you're grassroots or practitioners like myself or high profile advocates, that wherever we are, you know, you still have to use your space to try to influence that change. And um, and that, that's the only way we're going to create, you know, the big change that we want eventually. Oh, that's that's brilliant, Mark. And, and uh, I think uh, we're on a, a wave at the moment and uh, with people like yourself getting that message over, um, it, it's it's a winning position, I think. Um, so we, we recognise that um, advocacy is something that in, increases the opportunity for the creation of a safe culture, that sport can feel a safe place for, for children to, to, and young people and vulnerable people to enjoy themselves and spend their time um, engaging in. And that we know that when um, abuse, exploitation or harm occurs, that it, um, it can be addressed effectively, it can be treated transparently and uh, changes can be made. So thank you so much for your time to discuss this. And in these, uh, going on from this in the podcast, we'll continue to explore how to make a, an advocacy service that meets the high standards of Safe Sports International, uh, first class and accessible to everybody. And I want to say thank you to you, Mark, but also thank you to everybody listening. And uh, please pass on the website and the information to your family and friends. Thanks, you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Safe Sport International podcast. You can find more information about our work and resources, including details of our annual conference at safesportinternational.com. If you've been affected by any of the topics covered in this episode, you can find details of help and support at safesportinternational.com forward slash getting help. Finally, please do help us spread the word about safeguarding in sport by leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.